0: If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. From Exodus chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth?
1: I will invite you please to pray with me before we look at this passage further. Father, you are the God who speaks. You spoke to your people thousands of years ago on Mount Sinai. You spoke to the disciples of Jesus as Jesus spoke, revealing you. And you continue to speak to your church throughout the world, even as you speak to us this morning. So our prayer is uh, again as it is every week that as people who need to hear what you have to say to us that you would uh, by your spirit give us hearts to hear that you would help me to speak faithfully that through this time you would form us into the people you have created us to be and we pray this in Jesus name amen so the focus that that our last few weeks have been really on is the simple truth that what you and I most need more than anything else is to be able to worship the true God. And this week, when we are getting to this rather familiar story to many of us of of Israel making this golden calf to worship, what we see is that the greatest obstacle, the greatest thing that stands in the way of us experiencing what we most deeply need is us. Now, the challenge I think we have in this passage is while, and for many of us, if we grew up going to Sunday school, it's familiar, it, at the same time is bizarre, right? It just seems so foreign, the idea that the temptation would be for the people to make a cow and worship a golden cow. And so because of that, it, it can seem really removed, and we can just go like, silly Israelites. But what I... I want us to see this morning is actually what's going on amongst this people actually goes amongst you and me as well. And that what we actually have here is a warning for us. Now now to get there I want to invite you to use your imagination and to just think for a moment what it would have been like to be one of the Israelites. Imagine you are, are one of them, and for all of your life until a few months ago, you have lived in a simple, single home. It's never moved. You've had the same neighbors all your life, the same hikes that you take when you have a little bit of extra time to enjoy the river or whatever. It's not a great life. Your, your parents growing up, one of them was a slave making pyramids or whatever, and now you are facing slavery, but it's a predictable life. You know that you're going to have food every day. You know where you're going to sleep. There's there's comfort in the predictability. And then one day out of the blue, there's this guy, a guy you've never met who has not lived with your people for more than 40 years, comes and says, God has spoken to me, and he's told me that I'm going to lead this people out of this land to a new land. And, and, And maybe when you hear this, you feel like this kind of skeptic. Who is this Moses guy? Why does he think he's going to do this? And along with the skepticism, there is probably a sense of fear. uh, Threatened by the idea of of going to an unknown place when this is all you've ever known, right? And then things start getting really crazy. You you know, the, the water turns to blood. You see all these flies and these frogs. You hear stories of things happening again and again and again. And suddenly before you know it, you discover that you're told that tomorrow you're leaving. You better pack up right now. And so you do, because everyone else is going, you don't really have a choice, and you have all your stuff, and you're and you're going with your people to who knows where, and and you come to this dead end, and the soldiers are behind you, and you're really freaked out, and then you see this Moses guy praying, and then the water is opened, and you pass through, and you escape. But then things are still confusing, because you you've never, I mean, there's no maps, no GPS, you feel completely lost, and you don't have any food supplies, you don't have any water. But then Moses again prays, and, and you have food, and you have water. And in this utterly bewildering and unsettling time, the only thing that really is keeping you sane and keeping things okay is that Moses, this guy that you didn't know much about, seems to have things under control he he seems to have this connection to god that means things are going to be okay and so moses leads you to this mountain to meet with god and then there's thunder and lightning and fire and you hear a voice and you are more terrified than you've ever been in your life you feel like every part of you is going to, to disintegrate it's going to melt at the sound of this voice. And then it stops speaking, and you feel relief. And and Moses says that this God wants a covenant with you, his people, that there's going to be a a relationship formed. And so so there's promises made on both sides. And and the leaders have this feast before God, and, and a bond has been made. And so then Moses says, I need to go up to the top of the mountain to kind of work out the final details. And so Moses goes up and you wait. And for the first few days, it's kind of nice. You've been traveling for a while, and it's nice not to have to just keep on packing things up, but honestly, if you're a big group of people tightly together in the wilderness, there isn't a whole lot to do. And so you start getting impatient, and people start complaining, like, how long Does it really take for God and Moses to have a conversation to talk these things? It should have only taken a couple of days, right? Days are a long time for just talking and talking. But a week passes and and, and nothing. And so you wait. And then it's two weeks. Two weeks where you've heard nothing. Moses has not come down. Why hasn't he come down to tell us? Doesn't he at least need food? What's going on? And some people start murmuring questions. Could could Moses maybe have just actually felt too much the burden of leading? Could he have just run away? Or or maybe as he met with this terrifying God, he died. And so you wait. And, and, And then two weeks becomes 3 weeks 3 weeks of a people who are accustomed to being slaves who have not had leadership whose only leader is Moses he was the guide he was the one who told them what to do and they're without him 3 weeks and you're just wondering what happened and you're beginning to wonder maybe they're on to something maybe Moses isn't coming back and you're feeling scared and you wait and then 4 weeks have passed with no word. And it is absolutely inconceivable to you what could be taking four weeks. Like, what would you need four weeks for? Moses, he must have left. That's the only explanation that makes sense at this point. And now you, an entire mass of people without any clear leader, have no plan. I mean, going back to Egypt does not seem like a good idea after you've wiped out that army. But you don't really know where you're going, and you certainly don't know how you're going to get there. And and you wonder, what what is Moses doing? What has Moses done? And maybe you're even beginning to ask, this God who brought us out of Egypt, what is he doing? What's going on? Have you ever felt anything like this? this? In the midst of waiting, this confusion, even a kind of frustration with God, Do you know what it is to be in the desert? Paul Miller uh, wrote this book called The Praying Life, and in one chapter that I found really helpful, he he speaks of how Christians regularly will find themselves, or maybe not regularly, at least sometimes in their life, will find themselves experiencing a gap between their expectations of God and their actual experience of God. Usually these expectations have to do with prayer, that, that we come to really deeply desire something, something we are convinced is good. And so when we pray, we, we, we pray maybe expectantly, knowing this is the kind of thing that God wants. Maybe it's praying for the salvation of someone, or, or praying for a job, or, or who knows what, but it's something that we know is a good thing, and yet. As we pray, and as we pray, and as we look, and as we wait, nothing happens, or maybe things even get worse. And we find a gap between what we expect of God and what we experience of God, and that, Paul Miller says, is the desert. That's what he calls it, the desert. It's something almost every Christian goes through. Now, in this chapter, it says, ultimately, as God brings us through the desert and out to the other side, it is a way of God showing his love for us. He, he humbles us. He teaches us dependence. We, we draw nearer to him through it. But when you're in the desert, it is a time of temptation. You're tempted to, to become cynical, to give up on God. Or sometimes what you're tempted to do is to try to move the process along on your own. To kind of take things into your own hands, because it doesn't seem like God's going to do anything about it, so you're going to have to take care of it. And maybe even use means or choices that God might not actually very much approve of. So so a clear example of this in the Bible is Abraham and Sarah. God promises Abraham, he says... I am going to give you and Sarah a son. They've never had a child. It has broken their hearts. He promises them they're going to have a son, and that son is going to be one who is going to begin a great nation. And they love that, and they delight in that, and they wait. And 25 years later, in their old age, still, what they heard God say was going to happen It's not happened. There is a gap between their expectations and their experience. So what does Sarah do? She and Abraham take it into their own hands, say, well, okay, here's what what we're going to need to do because it doesn't look like God's going to get moving. Abraham, I have a servant. She's young. Sleep with her and you can have a kid and that's how this will work. They take it into their own hands. They're in the desert. They're tempted and they do something that is not honoring to God to try to make things happen. Not knowing that God still will give them Isaac. And that's the temptation that we have when we're in in this moment of waiting and not seeing what God is doing and confused. Maybe it's to, to kind of go into a gray area financially to make things fit together. Or maybe it's to cross certain lines in our relationships because we feel lonely. Or maybe it's something else, but it is It is taking things into our own hands because we don't see God doing what we think he should be doing and that's that's what's happening here at Mount Sinai when five weeks five weeks of no Moses comes the leaders of Israel they come to Aaron and they say we have no idea where this Moses guy is so we need to do something about this you're the one who is closest to Moses we need you to help us reconnect to this God. I want you to understand that's that's the thing that they are trying to do here. I know it seems bizarre and we'll kind of work through the details but what they're asking for is a way of reconnecting to the God so they can have a plan for how to get out of the Mount Sinai area and into the land that they're supposed to go. Now when it says as it does come uh, 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 as, for this Mo- says, as for this man Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we do not know what he has become of him, but right before that he says, up, make us gods who shall go before us. That could just as easily be translated, make us a god who will go before us. A- and, and context shows that's really what they're asking for, because it's only one statue that's made, right? But more to the point, when they are asking for this god to be constructed by Aaron, They're not not seeking a completely different God than the God who's rescued them. Here's here's a little secret that we don't think much about. No one ever thinks they're turning away from the true God so that they can worship something that's not God. They, They believe that what they're asking for is a representation of God. A statue that will kind of be their focal point so that they can reconnect with God and talk to him and move things forward. They just want to move God along. I mean, we know how that feels. Just sometimes wanting to move God along. That's what they're doing. They're saying, let's make a statue so that we can now have a connection point between us and God. And It might seem weird that they choose a, a cow, doesn't it? But why do we choose an eagle to represent our country? It's because... We, it's what it stands for in our thinking, I think. When we think of eagles, we think of independence and, and freedom and strength. Well, a cow in that day stood for power, especially we're talking a bull. Probably this was a bull. Power and fertility, the source of life. And so as they're making this statue, they want to honor this God who brought them out of Egypt. Notice, even Aaron says, we're going to have a feast tomorrow for the Lord. That's Yahweh in Hebrew, for the, for the God who brought you out of Egypt. They think that they're making a statue that honors the God who brought them out of Egypt. And they're honoring him the best way they can think of by depicting him as strong and, and life-giving. And, and notice how, how devout they are, how how passionate they are willing to sacrifice. Aaron says, give me your earrings. This is their precious jewelry. They have very little jewelry, but they're gladly willing to sacrifice and give it. And then he says, let's let's offer sacrifices. They don't have a lot of food. They don't have a lot of animals, but they're willing to offer their animals to this God who they believe brought them out of Egypt. They are, they are spiritual. They are well-intentioned they are devout, they are looking to God in their time of need. The only problem is that they're wanting to do it on their own terms, right? God's timing is not working well for them, so they want to do it on their timing, the way that, that they met with God before on the, on the mountain and the fire is terrifying, so they would rather just meet with him and, and something that makes more sense to them, and it, like, you know, this cow that still honors him. They have a worship service that is the way that they think they should honor God and worship and not, not how he says they are. They're meeting with God on their own terms. So on one hand, you see devout, you see passionate, you see spiritual. On the other hand, you see the fact that they're They're the ones who are deciding how they think of God and how they meet with God. And the question is, is this worship that is in their own terms even worship of the true God at all? Or is it a Stepford God? Perhaps you're familiar with uh, the book and then the movie, The Stepford Wives. Um, It's a story of in this, you know, kind of sleepy, town in Connecticut, this couple comes, and everything looks great, but people, they start noticing that it's a little bit weird, that every wife is not only attractive, but every wife seems to love doing housework, and and love doing whatever their husbands want them to do, And, and there is no extra thought life they have, no extra desires, and what is eventually discovered is that each of these husbands has eventually, has at some point or another replaced their wives with a perfect robot replica of their wives. A a robot who will do exactly what their husbands want. So all arguments are now resolved. All division of labor is now clear. In their relationships, from one perspective, it is idyllic. But the question, of course, is, is there love at all for a wife that is just your own making? Or is it really just love for yourself? And isn't that exactly what Israel is doing? These are Stepford, this is a Stepford God. Yes, they're going to use the name of God. Yes, they're going to use the story of God, but they get to depict God in a way that that makes sense to them, that that is comfortable to them. They get to approach God in a way that makes sense in terms of their own worship. Everything they're doing is on their terms. They're worshiping their Stepford God, and the question is, are they worshiping God at all? And I hope you're beginning to see how, how what happened in such a bizarre way thousands upon thousands of years ago actually speaks very much to our day and age. Because I would suggest that Stepford Gods is something that is endemic to our country. You know, I, I was surprised by a recent statistic that I looked at do you realize that less than 10% of the people in our country are identifying themselves either as atheistic or agnostic? Almost everyone believes in God of some sort. The question is not whether people believe in God, but it's what God they believe in and how they believe in God. And I would suggest that in our day, it is more common than ever before to think that we get to set the terms that we get to decide how we think God should be. You know, I think this is one of the reasons why sometimes a Christian position seems so offensive for us to believe that salvation is only through Christ, for us to believe in certain sexual ethics. The reason it's offensive is because people basically think, why would you choose to believe in a God who believes that? You can choose to believe in whatever God you want to, so if you believe in a God who says that, that clearly says something about you. It's utterly bewildering when we say we don't make the choices, it's God. Because we're in a nation that, that gets to decide what we think of God. I, I think an example of this, um, this is just, you know, representative, I'm not trying to pick on this particular book, but Annie Lamott wrote a book on prayer. And I think it re- represents kind of how our, our culture thinks of how we relate to God. It says, When we pray, let's not get bogged down on whom or what we pray to. Let's just say prayer is communication from our hearts to the great mystery, or to goodness, to the animating energy of love we are sometimes bold enough to believe in, to something unimaginably big and not us. We could call this force, not me. Or for convenience, we could just say, God. Do you understand what she is saying? She's saying it really doesn't matter the name we give to God, how you think of God. It doesn't really even matter how you pray. What matters is this spirituality, this this devotion, this, this willingness to draw near to God, however you think of him. And what she's saying is it's a step for God you make of God however you feel comfortable, and as long as you're devoted to that God, that is what prayer should look like. Do you realize how how contrary that is to the true God of the Bible? Now, what I definitely don't want us to do is to just go, oh, those people out there. And I think we really need to start thinking, to what extent is that sin uh, of reshaping God in a way that we're comfortable with Something that is true of us. Let me ask you, even as I ask myself, do you really know the true God? Or is the God that is in your mind that you think of a God largely of your own making, a God that you believe in because that's comfortable? How often does the God that you know and you believe in make you uncomfortable? How often does he do things that you find confusing or frustrating? How often as you come to understand who he is, do you feel a part of you wishing he were somehow different? If the answer is never... And the question is, is that because you have made God so much like you want him to be that you don't know the real God who will confront and offend and sometimes threaten you? Is your God a step God? See, our, our, our culture thinks that that's not a very important question. What's important is spirituality and devotion. But do you see how differently God evaluates what takes place when Israel is filled with devotion and filled with spirituality and calls upon God, but not upon the true God. What does God say? In verse 7, he just summarizes all of the problems that are with this. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. It's interesting that he starts there. You are defined by what you worship. And when we worship something other than the true God it it ruins us. It makes us less than what we were made to be. It corrupts us. It continues on they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. So often we think worship is more about passion or about rituals but for God worship is fundamentally about obedience. And God said, just not that long ago, do not make an image of me. And they've disobeyed. And God says, to obey is better than sacrifice. They have walked away from my commands. And says, they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Do you hear the anger, the grief, the the offense? My people have been unfaithful to me. My people have cheated on me with another God. Because they just had their wedding feast. The closest analogy that I can think of to the covenant that was made between God and his people is a wedding covenant. They have bound themselves to each other, and now on the wedding night, the people of Israel are sleeping with someone else. I I think perhaps some of the times that we don't recognize the gravity of idolatry, it's because... We forget that God is a person. We think of him as this force that's all present rather than a true person who truly loves and is truly distinct. And not only does he love, the Bible says he loves jealously. Like a husband who loves his wife so deeply that he will never be satisfied if his wife is cheating with another, so God loves us jealously. And to cheat on him is to betray him. And do you see how God responds to this? Do you see the depth of passion that God has for this? He says, verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. They will not repent, is what that means. Now let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. This is one of those parts of the Bible that we kind of would rather skip over because we don't want to think of a God who is wrathful. But but what we are meant to see as God is saying this is just how grave a sin idolatry is. That it is worthy of God's anger. It is worthy of destruction. It is heinous in God's sight. In just a moment we will see that this is not the last note, that the the last note of this story is forgiveness. But before we jump there, we need to understand that when God forgives, it is not because idolatry is trivial in His sight. It's not because He has to forgive. It's not because he will somehow be lonely without us, and so he needs us. None of those are true. This is horrible, and he would have every right to wipe out this people in a moment. And yet there is forgiveness. You know, one of the the ironic tragedy, or the tragic ironies of this, is that even as these people are feeling the need to plan, to figure out a way to make a connection with God, what is God speaking to Moses about on the mountain? He's saying, Here's the plans. Here's the great plans I have for how I can live among you. I'm going to make a tent so that I'm always with you and you'll never wonder where I am again. This is the truth of the desert by the way even as we are wondering what god is doing god is attentive and he knows and he has a plan that is better than we realize in the middle of the desert and if only israel had known and waited this would all have been different but they didn't and so over the next chapters there's this question what will god do god deserves to destroy them but even if he doesn't destroy them maybe he just leaves them alone that would also be appropriate that would be mercy But in the midst of this, Moses, Moses, the one who is their leader, prays. He himself also is filled with anger. He sees the horribleness of what is done, but he loves his people and he prays. And he doesn't pray, hey God, they don't deserve it. He prays, Lord, you are a merciful God. Lord, you have made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. Lord, remember these promises, show mercy and stay with us. And God hears the prayer, and it says he relents. And I'll tell you, one of the most beautiful aspects to me of this book of Exodus is something that's easy to overlook, because we kind of skim over some of this section. But right before we get to this great sin of the golden calf, God is giving the blueprints for the tabernacle. And do you know what happens right after God declares his forgiveness? He doesn't say there's going to be a, a 12 month time of probation he doesn't say you know what okay I'll go with you but only remotely he says okay let's go right back to making this tabernacle that I planned there is there's no resentment there is an immediate return it is like a do-over it is like nothing ever happened because that's the extent of God's forgiveness even for the grave sin of idolatry because of Moses's prayer do you realize That right now, right now, you have someone who is praying for you before the Father. Someone who's greater than Moses. Scripture says, Jesus, the Son of God, prays for us night and day. Reminding God of his mercy. Reminding God that these people are bound in Him. And the Son who prays for you again and again is the one who brings us repentance. So that as grave as our sin is, as grave as our idolatry is, in Christ we are completely forgiven and we are given a complete do over. And I believe that the more that we understand, what idolatry actually looks like and how terrible it is and how deep God's forgiveness is. The more it will drive us to seek to turn from our own man-made visions of God to pursue and know the true God and worship him faithfully. There's there's a quote um, that I really love from Flannery O'Connor um, for perhaps you're familiar with Flannery O'Connor. She's a, uh, an author uh, known for her short stories, but she also kept this prayer journal. And in it, uh, after she died, was, this prayer was discovered. She wrote Dear God, I cannot love thee the way that I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see. And myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all of the moon. What I am afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon. I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. I believe that's right that we do not know God because so often we are in the way, that oftentimes our worship is not true worship because we worship something of our own making. And I think the right response is to turn before God in confession and acknowledge where our sin is and to look at Christ and to ask for forgiveness and ask that he would show us the true God who is worthy of our worship and love. So I invite us even now to take a moment in silent confession, asking that God would cleanse our vision, that we would see the true God more clearly and worship him alone. Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord God, we, we confess that we do not love you as you deserve. And so often we, we are threatened by who you truly are and it's easy for us to think of you differently than you are. And so we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to help us to see you more clearly, to worship you, the true God. We ask that you would forgive us our sin and that you would lead us more and more to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here are the good news of the gospel from Nehemiah, reflecting on this very event. In this prayer, Nehemiah says, They, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in the rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them hear the good news. Because of God's great compassion, he did not leave us in our rebellion and sin, but sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins so that we might be saved. Thanks be to God.